I was saying that we're probably going to run out of funds to pay our debts by June 1st. That's what it looks like. And obviously that's not good because I think in the global economy there's something like $500 billion. That's roughly – that's the amount of U.S. debt that's traded in the global economy just about every day. And obviously if we default on our debt, the price of those assets is going to drop significantly. It's going to cause a lot of turmoil in global markets, which – speculating on what the exact effects of that can be is kind of impossible um, because, I mean, those markets are very complex and there are a lot of second, third-order consequences that you can't really foresee ahead of time. But needless to say, it wouldn't be good. Probably see a significant drop in the stock market. I mean, it, it would not be good for the average person. Pensions wiped out, savings accounts wiped out, retirement accounts wiped out. And especially for older people that don't have an opportunity to rebuild that lost wealth, that'd be a very big problem. Why would it be wiped out? Well, I might not necessarily be all wiped out, but if you get a significant decline in a particular asset, that's likely to ripple throughout the stock market. It's likely to ripple throughout our capital markets. That's going to cause significant decreases um, in the value of certain holdings. Um, I know that a lot of retirement accounts, they hold government bonds and stuff like that. And if in order to sell those bonds, you had to sell them at significantly less than you bought them for, that's a problem, you know. So if the government cannot write checks, who's not getting paid or who's not getting a check? Um, well, in theory, it'd be some of just whoever some of those bondholders are. Um, it, I can't tell you exactly who that would be. I mean, it'd probably be kind of widely dispersed. I mean, it's kind of a crazy thing that we're even talking about doing this because there's nothing stopping the government from doing this. This is a, this is an issue that has been completely manufactured by politicians. And now there's all this fear mongering about it. And if this is actually allowed to happen, <laughs> all of these politicians should be put on trial. I mean, this is insane that we're playing around with something this dangerous. We're treating it like a political football. I mean, this is the economic future of this country, and they're just treating it like another bargaining chip to try and, you know, slash Social Security or slash healthcare spending. It's it's extremely reckless. It's very reckless. So would if would someone's social social security be in jeopardy? That's a different program. That's different. What we're talking about is what not a- the government we're not talking about the government not being able to pay their budget. We're talking about the government not being able to pay their debts. So we're talking about government like treasury bonds that are becoming due or just money that we've borrowed that we wouldn't pay back. So everyone in Congress would still be getting paid? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the budget wouldn't be affected by this. They're trying, they're using the budget as a negotiating tool because right now, I mean, we're having an argument about the debt ceiling. Um, we need to raise the debt ceiling because basically with the amount of spending that we've already done, um, the amount of debt that we have, in order to pay that debt, we'd have to go beyond where we're currently allowed to. Um, and Republicans and Democrats are fighting about that right now. Republicans are basically like, we'll raise the debt ceiling, but first you have to agree to certain spending cuts. And the Democrats obviously don't want to agree to those spending cuts Um, And even if they did, they're going to want to cut different sources of spending or maybe find ways to raise revenue through, you know, raising taxes on the wealthy or, you know, maybe allowing Medicaid or Medicare to negotiate drug prices and find some savings there. 
But, I mean, we're a few weeks away from a U.S. debt default. And that's only happened, I think, four times in U.S. history. Um, and each of those times is slightly different. I think once was maybe in the 1860s, one was in the 30s. And then there were two others that really had less to do with a debt default and more to do with like the convertibility of certain notes into gold. But each of those times have not been good. Obviously, the 1930s was not a good time economically. Um, so yeah, this is something we should not be playing around with at all. And then you have, I mean, Trump in his recent town hall, uh, I don't know if that was in his town hall, but I know he said that they should let us default, like his negotiating position. He's like, we should, we should default if they don't agree to these spending cuts. I mean, that's crazy. You can't, the consequences of U.S. debt default are significantly worse than the consequences of increased spending. Even if you agree, even if you think that increased spending might contribute to inflation, which the case for that is kind of shaky, a debt default is going to be significantly worse. And in my opinion, seeing that and siding with the default as opposed to just raising the ceiling is very short-sighted and deeply ideological thinking that I think is very biased. Now, when he was president... He said to not let it default, and so they yeah, asked he, he him. He said that that'd be crazy, basically. Yes, which he was, and, he was right when he and said. And so that. they asked him during the town hall, and he was like, "Well, I was president then. President then. I'm not president now." And in theory, it would work in favor of him in his campaign if the Biden administration, all the chaos, came in from the default under him then it would make him look better. Yeah, I mean, theoretically, I mean, so here's the thing. I think you're right that that chaos might actually play to Trump's favor, not because it's it would actually be Biden's fault, but just because people, especially people that don't look into these things very deeply, they tend to associate whatever's happening in the country with the president. Even if it has nothing to do with anything the president is actually doing or not doing, it's just kind of a default association. So, you know, when Trump was in office, the economy was doing okay. Um, we had job growth, the stock market was growing, and of course, all of that was attributed to Trump. Um, Biden's in office now, and we're dealing with some economic issues, and of course, that's all attributed to Biden. Uh, but the thing is, I mean, the president doesn't have that much control over the economy. You know, it's not like Biden is the one setting interest rates. It's not like Biden is the one setting the price of oil in Saudi Arabia. Um, it's not like Trump was setting interest rates or setting the price of gas. These all are much more complicated systems that the president has some control over, but they're given way too much credit and way too much blame. Well, they also raised the debt ceiling while Trump was in office. Yeah. So it's not unheard of that during someone's term, the debt ceiling increases. It's, increases. it's a pretty common thing that we do because this issue comes up again and again. In reality, the debt ceiling should probably just be abolished. It's kind of a useless thing that gives politicians an opportunity to fight with each other every couple of years. But in actuality, if we're just going to raise it every time we hit it, and if the consequences of not raising it are a debt default, we should probably just get rid of it. I mean, I don't see the tangible purpose. And of course, there are some more fiscally conservative-minded people that will say, well, no, the debt ceiling is really important because it keeps our spending in check. I think if you look at that historically, it's pretty obvious that the debt ceiling has not accomplished that job, even if it was intended for that. So the question is, if it's not doing the job it's intended for, but it has all these other negative consequences, what real purpose does it serve? 
Do our debts include what we have committed to Ukraine? Um, I mean, what is what is on the chopping block? Here's the thing. I don't know if there's... I don't know what the specific things are that are on the chopping block. I don't know if anyone really knows. Because I think it just kind of depends on whatever whatever bonds that we have out there, whatever their due date is, if they come due after June 1st, we can't pay for them. Is basically, so anything that, uh, anything that matures past that date, it's just kind of up in the air. And that's a big issue. Because our ability... I think the big issue with it, aside from the fact that it would cause a lot of turmoil in global markets, a big element of power in the geopolitical stage, obviously you have hard power and that's your ability to exert military force, but you also have soft power and that's built not only on intimidation, but also on trust, um, trust in your economy, trust in your government. And if the United States can't even keep our own government in line to pay our own bills when there is no real restriction from us doing so, I can't see a world in which that doesn't diminish our international standing. Because there's going to be a lot less trust in the U.S. government. There's going to be less trust in the U.S. economy, less trust in the U.S. dollar. Those are all negative things for Americans. And it's hard to speculate exactly how that's going to manifest in our day-to-day lives because that could affect a thousand different things that no one could really connect those dots ahead of time. But needless to say, it's not a good scenario. And it's something that would best be avoided, particularly because of how chaotic it would be. We don't necessarily know what the impacts would be. And that's, that's even more dangerous to me than knowing exactly, well, if this happens, then this happens. This is not a straight A to B type scenario. This could branch out in so many different ways. Do you think it's more important for them to butt heads <clears throat> party-wise over either raising the debt ceiling or d- defaulting? Are they thinking of the win or are they thinking of the average American and what this could do to them? I think I think it's a bit of both. I mean, I don't think the politicians... I'm sure there's a lot of things running through their head. Because I know a lot of politicians in the Republican Party, they genuinely believe that a lot of spending is bad for the economy. They believe it causes inflation. That eats away at workers' wages and savings. So they view this as an opportunity to get spending under control. And if they kind of have to play a bit of brinksmanship, if they kind of have to play a game of chicken with our national debt, then they're willing to do that because they see that as a really strong bargaining position. Um, But I do think it's very short-sighted in terms of just the potential implications that this could have because even if we manage to pass an agreement before we reach that date, the fact that we got this close – is an international embarrassment as far as I'm concerned. I mean, our political system is so disordered that we almost allowed ourselves to default on a debt when we have the full ability to pay it, merely because our own politicians were so busy scrapping with each other over their own ideologies in regards to spending that they were willing to see the global economy go up in flames because of it. I mean, it's, it's so deeply irresponsible. And I think anyone that's been involved in it, I mean, I think voters should look at that. They should deeply consider that whenever those politicians come up for re-election. Let's talk about voting and whose vote really counts these days. What do you mean? 
from lobbying to super PACs, corporate power? Well, I mean, look, our democratic institutions, they are flawed. At the end of the day, we still erect, we still elect our representatives on a generally a popular vote with the exception of the president because we have the, uh, the electoral college. So the president's kind of an exception because we have the electoral college, which is fundamentally kind of an undemocratic thing. But most of our representatives, we still elect democratically. But the thing is that democratic process has become so corrupted by corporate influence that it's really it's really been undermined by the corporate influence in our politics. So like to give an example, you know anyone can run for a position. But at the end of the day, a lot of your ability to win elections just depends on name recognition. How many people know who you are, what you stand for? And in order to do that, you have to market. You have to raise money. You have to get your name out there through ads, through billboards, through events, all these different sorts of things that requires capital. Um, And whenever you make your access to capital one of the fundamental determinants of who wins elections, you are inadvertently benefiting whoever in society has the most capital which tends to be the wealthy elite. So they can come in and bankroll uh, their preferred candidate in exchange for policies and uh, opinions that are going to serve their own interests. And it is through that mechanism that the wealthy elite have corrupted some of our democratic values and institutions um, because their wealth and their power has given them access to the levers of government decision-making. So with what you were just saying, how does all that is happening with Clarence Thomas feed into this corruption. Yeah. I mean, I think Clarence Thomas is a pretty glaring example of some of the fundamental problems in our country, right? So the Supreme Court already is an undemocratic institution just by default. And it's kind of intended to be because it's supposed to kind of be a check against some of the more mob rule impulses that can arise in a democracy. Now, I think that's kind of a flawed way of looking at things. And I think in some ways that just kind of shows some of the dated nature of our institutions because our institutions were created in a time when people were worried that specifically, you know, the wealthy elites in the earlier colonial America were worried that, well, if you let everyone vote, you know, they might take away the things that we have and everyone might have an equal say. But regardless, the Supreme Court's already kind of an undemocratic institution. And then in addition to that, we've now found out that these judges are getting treated lavishly by these billionaires. And the fact that that can't be considered a conflict of interests is absurd. I mean, Clarence Thomas, he was basically receiving what was equivalent to millions of dollars in gifts from this person. And the idea that that wouldn't have any potential impact on his decision making is ludicrous. And then you pair that with the fact that his wife was involved with a lot of the stop the steal type things. That's very concerning that we have someone like that on the highest um, judicial body in the country. We have a person whose wife is showing, um, whose wife is involved with a movement that is undemocratic. And now we found out that he's taking gifts from billionaires Um, who apparently are best buds and they're all hanging out. And in the meantime, they're passing all sorts of legislation. I mean, the Supreme Court was hearing a case just a while back to uh, 
try and undercut the funding for the EPA, try and undercut the funding for the Consumer Bureau of Financial Protection. These are all big issues that the Supreme Court is deciding, and to find out that there might be external influences that are affecting their decision-making is deeply problematic. How do we keep the conflict of interest and many as an influence in our policies and in the decision-makers? How do we keep that out of the Senate? out of the House, out of our government leadership? I don't think we can ever get it completely out of the equation. Wealth and power have been inextricably linked basically as long as human civilization has existed. Um, I mean, we know, for example, I mean, just to show you the impact that wealth and money has had on human culture and society, the oldest writing that we have coming from ancient Mesopotamia is a record of debts that are owed. That's the oldest known writing that we have examples of. So wealth and power have been inextricably linked forever. I mean, this is something even Aristotle was talking about. Aristotle said, and this is an exact quote, but he was basically, there's a quote from him, and he's talking about how if you wish to have a stable society, you should avoid extremes in wealth and poverty because extremes in wealth and poverty inherently destabilize things. So anytime that you have a society with rapidly spiraling wealth inequality, you're also going to have rapidly spiraling power inequality as a consequence of that. And that is going to affect government decision-making because wealth has a way of opening those doors. And you can pass legislation and you can pass regulations to try and prevent that from happening. But if you have the, the money to hire the best lawyers in the world, if you have the money to send your kids to the same schools as these politicians, if you have the money to host events and you're all in the same room, you're going to find ways around those regulations. So at the end of the day, one of the best ways to tackle this, and there are specific policies and political forms we could talk about. You know, we could end Citizens United. We could put more stringent, you know, restrictions on campaign contributions. All those are things that we should pursue, but they're never going to be enough until we fix the underlying mechanisms in the economy, which create these massive disparities to begin with, because there's always going to be some loophole. There's always going to be some way around it. So until we can fix that underlying inequality, I don't think it's going anywhere because it's, it's inevitable that those with extreme wealth will also wield extreme power. I would love to see our public schools and our education of our youth become a priority. Well, let's talk about education, which I see is one way to elevate a society. Absolutely. Um, we know uh, empirical evidence has shown time and time again that in terms of things that a government can invest in to increase economic growth, education is one of the top things. Spending on education does more for GDP growth than tax cuts, significantly more. Um, and it, it's pretty straightforward. If you think about you know, what are the fundamental levers of the economy – well, it's labor and capital, right? And you have your fundamental economic resources. So that's things like your workers, energy, materials, stuff like that. Well, obviously, if you can make labor more productive, that's going to translate into higher economic output. And one of the best ways we know to make labor more productive is to make people more educated, give them more skills, give them a better training, more education, uh, just a, a, a greater ability to think things through and a greater knowledge of various different things. So education is one of the few things that really translates into increased economic growth. So the fact that we have a committed faction 
in this country that seems to be demonizing public education. They want to slash public education budgets. They want to privatize the education system. They are fundamentally opposed to one of the best ways we know to increase economic growth. Um, why, why are they opposed to better education? Um, well, it's, it's a few things. And who is they? Uh, okay, so we're talking really about Republicans right now. Um, and this is something that honestly goes back to even Reagan. I think there are two fundamental reasons, and I think one of them is more genuinely believed than the other. So the first is just it's an idiot. It's a purely ideological reason. Um, they're very stringent advocates of free market economics, and they fundamentally think that just about anything the government does, the market could do better. And they view education the same way. So they seem to think that if we could reduce public funding for education, private schools would come in and private schools would function better than public schools. Um, parents would have more say in what their kids are learning. The education would be cheaper and higher quality. Um, the problem with that, of course, is that, for one, private school curriculums sometimes are better than public school curriculums, but sometimes they're a lot worse too. Um, I know just in my personal life, I know people that went to private schools and there were very important things that they didn't get taught because the school was a religious school and they weren't able to teach about certain subjects. And that actually held some of these people back in high school because they were starting at a disadvantage in, compared, in comparison to other students. And also there are some families that are so low income that they simply are not going to be able to pay for a private school education. And even if you say, well, we can give out vouchers, well, private schools are still selective. They don't take everyone that comes in. So even if you have a voucher, you might not necessarily get accepted into the program. Um, so public schools are a really important thing. Every country, every well-developed country on earth has flourishing public school programs. It's one of the things that helped develop America. And if we want to keep America developing, we need to be investing more into these public schooling programs, not taking money out of them. Because at the end of the day, that's going to result in nothing more than a lesser educated population and a less productive labor force. And that's going to be bad for the economy going forward. Is there any correlation between some of the poorest states or red states? Mm -hmm. How do they compare in education? Um, well, not good, obviously. Um, we've mentioned that there's a correlation between um, quality education and economic growth. Um, and conversely, when you look at some of the poorest states, obviously they're going to have some of the worst education systems. Part of that is because they lack the public funding for quality education systems, and those two issues kind of feed into each other, right? So you have a poor education system that produces lesser educated workers who are less productive. That leads to lower economic growth, which leads to even less money for the education system. And it's kind of a self-perpetuating cycle. Um, and that's another thing that a lot of people sometimes criticize some Republicans for is that they actually want to undercut some educational funding because demographically speaking, as people become more educated, they also become more liberal and they tend to vote more for Democrats. So there are some people that say, well, look, the reason Republicans want to cut education budgets isn't just because they believe in the free market or isn't just because they're worried that teachers are going to teach kids about trans people in the second grade. It's actually because they know that an educated population is bad for them politically because a lot of their policies rely on ignorance. A lot of their policies rely on people 
that don't have an extensive knowledge of U.S. history. They don't have an extensive knowledge of geopolitics, or they don't have an extensive knowledge of philosophy or mathematics or psychology or any of these more nuanced topics that once you really dig into them, you realize that a lot of the Republican rhetoric stops making sense. So how do we improve this situation? Which situation? Of having this disparity of some states, you might receive a better education than yeah. you would in another. Yeah, and it's not even in states. It's even it's even more localized than that. I mean, a big issue in some of these significantly, like some of the worst, some of the most crime-ridden communities in America, some of the poorest communities in America, one of the biggest reasons they stay that way is because the education systems there are so disastrous. And, that, and a big reason for that is because in America, our public schools are funded primarily through property taxes. Um, but the problem with that is that that means that the education you receive is heavily based on the class that you just happen to be born into and the wealth of the community that you happen to be born into. Because if you're born into a poor community, while well, the property taxes there are going to yield less, it's going to result in less resources for your education. So you're born into a bad situation, you receive a poor education because of it, and then account of that, you're less prepared to be a productive worker and you're more likely to stay in poverty as you grow up. Like I said, that creates a self-perpetuating cycle. So Personally, what I think a good way to go about that would be, I think we need to find a different way to fund our public schools. I don't think it should be reliant on property taxes. Perhaps it should be, it should definitely be administered at the state level, but I would even be supportive of something like the federal government taking a more direct role in funding those. They could give out block grants to these states um, with the explicit intention of funding their public schools, and there could be X amount set aside per 1,000 students, per 100 students, and we could possibly do it that way to ensure that everyone receives a more fair shot at a quality education instead of simply being doomed to a terrible one simply on account of where you happen to be born. So while we are still talking about education and the correlation between poverty and education, how do we bring people up out of poverty besides education? Okay, so really, if we want to get serious about tackling poverty, we need to be giving people the maximum amount of opportunities and resources that we can um, to give them kind of a leg up out of that pit, right? So if we think about, you know, what are some of the most basic human needs that need to be met to make someone as productive and as healthy as possible? Um, those are going to be things like housing, healthcare, education is a good start as well. We just need to be setting people up for success um, instead of assuming that by some weird logic that somehow allowing people to suffer is going to give them the motivation to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. It seems that what we know about human psychology, that's not necessarily true. We need to be putting people in a position to succeed. And there are numerous ways that we can do that. The best way that we know, um, obviously we need uh, a system, an economic system that has the right incentives for people. But in addition to that, we also need a strong social safety net. And there are all sorts of different public programs that are going to be in that, um, some of which we already have, but I think we need to expand. Um, and right now there's a political movement in this country that wants to slash holes in that social safety net. I think 
that is the complete opposite approach that we need to be taking. We need to be patching the holes that already exist and building that net stronger and wider than it already is. Because if we look at some of the most successful countries in the world in terms of GDP per capita, in terms of economic freedom, in terms of happiness indexes, they're the Nordic countries. And those countries are famous for having some of the most well-developed social safety nets on earth. Um, and obviously that's going to look slightly different in America because we're a much larger country. We have some different issues, but we can take that model and adapt it to our problems in a way that I think would be very productive. So we could look at things like universal health care. Now, I'm not exactly a stickler on how we get there. I think Medicare for all would be good, but if a public option is more politically feasible, I'm down for that as well. Um, we also need to be looking at, like we were talking about education, we need to ensure that K through 12, accessible to everyone, quality education, um, regardless of where you find yourself living. And then from there, I also think that we should have public college and trade schools available either for free or for a significantly reduced cost. And if we aren't going to go the free route, I think a good route to take, we could peg it to median wages at the state level. So we could say, because I don't think that college in California should necessarily be the same price as college in Arkansas because obviously your wage potential once you're out of that school is going to be different in those different states. So I think that if we weren't going to go the free route, we could say, well, your tuition is going to be X amount of the median wage in this state for college-educated workers. So that way we could ensure that no one's saddled with so much debt that once they get out, they can never pay it off. And that way we could keep the growth and the price of college tuition steady over time. Um, those two things would go a long way because at the end of the day, a healthy and educated workforce is going to be almost infinitely more productive than what we have now. Yes. And not only that, when you cannot talk about crime if you do not talk about poverty. Yeah, and, we and have, inequality. And inequality. Yeah. And we have all of that. Mm -hmm. And I don't... I do not understand why we are not addressing it. In no, this because country. that is poverty and inequality are some of the root causes of crime. I'm not saying that's the only cause. Crime is a multifaceted issue. But people seem to think that the solution to crime are cops and guns. And here's the thing if the solution to crime were cops and guns, America would be the safest country in the world. Um, our military budget, if it was ranked as a – our police budget, if it was ranked as a military budget, would be like one of the top five in the world. I think we spend more on our domestic police than some other major countries spend on their entire military operations. Um, we have the highest incarceration rate out of almost any country in the world. Um, this has been our solution to crime for the last century. And if it hasn't worked yet, it's probably not going to. So it's time we start looking at some other solutions. It's time we start addressing the root causes of these problems instead of merely addressing the symptoms, which is what we've been doing. Because at the end of the day, you can only put a Band-Aid over a wound for so long. But at a certain point, we have to you know, remove the knife from the wound. I don't know how America got here, but there seems to be an attitude where if it's free, the assumption is no one would appreciate it. You have to work for it. You have to earn it to appreciate it. Or that the other alternative is it would be abused. Mm. We are always striving to be on the top. Yeah. I mean, we see that in the, cor in the corruption. People will do yeah. 
terrible, corrupt things um, for the mighty dollar. Mm-hmm. Well, there's definitely... Well, here's one thing we have to get clear about. There's a sizable portion of America that actually likes a lot of these policies quite a bit. It's just not big enough right now to swing elections sizably to enact those policies. And then also we do have a section of the country that is vehemently opposed to these policies because they seem to oppose most forms of social safety nets, aside from the ones that are kind of normalized in our country, like Social Security or Medicaid or something like that. Those are social safety programs, um, but they've been so normalized in our culture for so long that a lot of people don't think of them that way. Um, I think a big way we go about changing that, I feel like for some of the older generations, I don't know if there's any changing their mind um, because, point blank, they've kind of been brainwashed to be opposed to it for 40, 50 years now. And I don't know what it would take to get them out of that. Um, I do think increased education and information could help, but that's only going to go so far. I mean, for some of these people, no amount of information would change their mind. Younger generations seem to be a lot more in favor of it, um, which is why you see a growing movement of like democratic socialism among Gen Z, stuff like that. A lot of people hear that and they get really scared. But Explain the difference between a democratic socialist and social democracy. I'll explain the difference in terms of terms. I think a lot of people that use the term democratic socialism mean social democrat, but then you have people that mean democratic socialism where they actually mean socialism. Um, A social democrat believes in a well-regulated market economy with strong social safety programs. Um, So that's countries like the Nordic countries. They have very high economic freedom. They're still fundamentally a market-based economy, but they're a well-regulated market economy and they have public programs that ensure that all of their citizens have access to the basic necessities and the basic resources and opportunities um, that are required to live a fulfilling and healthy life. Um, A democratic socialist, on the other hand, actively wants to move away from capitalism and transition to socialism through democratic processes. So that's different from, you know, a revolutionary socialist who wants to, you know, basically revolt against the bourgeoisie. Democratic socialist wants to go to socialism using democratic institutions step by step by step. Um, So the difference between social democrat and a democratic socialist, democratic socialist actually wants to reach a point where we abolish private property and move all the way to socialism. Social democrat says, let's keep the market-based economy. Let's keep the economic freedom that comes with that. But let's take steps necessary to regulate that system to make it work better and also invest in the public programs to take care of anyone that falls out of that system or falls behind in that system. I do not. <clears throat> I do not see either party right now willing to take the steps to move towards a universal health care or to really take any steps. I think they think it's too soon, that America in general does not want it, that voters would not support it. So I don't it, know what it, it will... It, it's it's a few things. Um, so one, the Republicans aren't going to be on board for that simply because ideologically they can't support that because that would mean supporting growth in the government um, and the economic sector and they're going to be opposed to that because they serve the wealthy elites 
and their interests even more than the Democratic Party establishment does. Um, on the Democratic side, you have mixed opinions about it. There's a sizable portion of the Democratic Party that would be in favor of some form of universal health care, whether that's Medicare for all or something like a public option. But then you have the more moderate Democrats who are opposed to it, um, either because they accept sizable donations from pharmaceutical industries, from the healthcare industries, from the insurance industries, or just because they personally, as a matter of ideological conviction, don't think it's a good idea. Um, and also, if you look at the American population, let me see what the latest estimates were on that. Because I think, I just don't think we're at a point yet where a majority of American voters really want it. We're close. Um, and I think once the younger generations start to come a voting age, we're probably going to cross that threshold. But right now, I just don't think we're at that point yet. Um, and a big reason for that is because the universal health care gets stigmatized as a form of socialism. Um, and a sizable chunk of the American voting demographic right now, they lived through the Cold War era. They were constantly being told about how horrible and evil anything um, associated with socialism is that that's so baked into their brain. Anytime you associate any sort of program with socialism, they automatically have a negative emotional reaction to it and will oppose it strongly. I don't know if anyone has really sat down to see how we could make it better. We have a lot of examples of where it has not worked. Mm -hmm. Or we hear horror stories about the length of time it may take for you to see a doctor or the quality of care once you get there. So I think we, as Americans, we would want it to be better than that. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. And this is one thing that I think a lot of politicians and pundits are really dishonest about. Every policy, no matter what it is, is going to come with certain costs and benefits. There are always going to be trade-offs for anything. So the trade-off for our current system right now is that it's very expensive, very expensive. Um, people are put into tremendous amounts of debt with our current system. But on average, it does have a high quality of care if you can afford the care, right? So the American healthcare system is the best health system in the world if you're wealthy. But if you're not wealthy, it's one of the worst healthcare systems in the world because you're going to have less access to it. And if you do manage to get access to it, you're going to be in a position where you're kind of financially ruined for a significant period of time, if not the rest of your life. Um, so that's the trade-off with our current system. The trade-off for something like a universal healthcare system, yeah, you might have to wait a bit longer. And the reason for that is there are more people that would be able to get the care compared to now. The reason you don't have to wait so long now is because there are less people taking advantage of the system because it's priced out a significant portion of the people that actually need the care. Um, in a universal healthcare system, you're not pricing those people out. So yes, yeah, certain procedures might take a bit longer. But I think if you ask the average American, would you rather wait a bit longer or would you rather go into debt for the next 20 years? I think most people are going to take the, well, I'll wait a bit longer. Because I think that seems like a more sensible option. In terms of quality of care, there's not that big of a differentiation from what I've studied. Um, it's still pretty high quality. And considering um, the amount of technological innovation, the amount of capital that we have in America, I wouldn't see the quality of the care the quality of care declining significantly. And we could still keep private hospitals. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, that could be you know a sort of separate system from the one that we have. But I think that 
the government acting as a single insuring entity and removing the private rapacious insurance companies that act as nothing but an unnecessary middleman from the equation would do wonders for the American economy and the American people. Well, that was going to be a question I had for you as well because Trump promised to do something about the Affordable Care Act. Uh And... It's going to be beautiful. Yeah, for me personally... It has become more expensive year after year after year. Higher deductibles, higher out of pocket. Mm-hmm. And there was a couple of years I didn't even use my insurance. Yeah. And the next year it increased uh-huh. still. He was going to increase competition. Yeah. That's that's the and famous last that words did not of a happen. bad policy. There are Fewer companies I have access to mm-hmm. in this state who will cover. And the people that I see getting rich are pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies. Mm-hmm. And I see the average American poor, yeah. sick, Look, here's in the- debt. And if you do... I mean, the percentage of bankruptcies that are filed just strictly because in order to live, they have to get health care and go to a doctor. But then once they do and get their bill and then they're trying to pay that off, then their quality of life is not worth living. Yeah, I mean, health care costs are the number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States. Mm-hmm. That is... And that's not... That's that's a disaster. And that's not people who like, oh, I I want to live, but I don't want to pay my bills. No. That's well, is... people that can't pay their bills. Mm-hmm. Um Yeah, let's let's talk a bit more about universal health care because there are a few things that I commonly hear put forward as in opposition to this idea that I think kind of need to be cleared up. So one thing, a lot of times you'll typically hear there are two things you usually hear. So the first is that, well, how are we going to pay for it? That's one. Two is, why should I pay for someone else's health care? So I'll tackle those one at a time. So the first in terms of how are we going to pay for it? Well, we're probably going to raise taxes on the wealthy. And even if we have to raise taxes on everyone, think about it this way. Imagine if the amount that you were currently paying for your insurance decreased by X amount. Um, I, I think the... I've seen studies that said, on average, even if we had to raise taxes, American families would save, on average, around 14% a year from what they currently pay. Um, And that savings would come from, now you're paying increased taxes, but your taxes are going to increase less than the amount that you were paying for private insurance beforehand. So, like, uh, for example, let's look up, you know, average um, monthly insurance payment. Yeah. So the average national monthly health insurance cost for one person on an Affordable Care Act plan is $438. Excuse me? That's the average monthly health insurance cost for a single person on the Affordable Care Act plan. Is that with help? Because no, that's that's without subsidies. So it's $438. Some people might be higher. Some people might be lower with subsidies or various different factors. But imagine if you were paying... in increased taxes, 
that means you've saved a little over $80, and you now have full coverage. You don't have to worry about showing up and having to pay anything out of pocket. You show up for any procedure, any surgery, anything, any illness you have, you show up, you get treated. It's not a penny out of your pocket. That's a better system. That's a far better system. So even if your taxes increase, they're going to increase less than you were currently paying for private insurance. So in regards to the how are we going to pay for it question, that's pretty much covered by that. Um, and in reality, we can't really afford not to do universal health care. We pay more per capita for health care in this country than almost any other country on earth, especially the ones that have a universal health care system. And a big reason for that um, is because whenever you remove insurance companies and their money grubbing and profit seeking from the equation, that's a big source of savings just right there because they're taking a percentage off the top for profit for themselves. If you get them out of the equation, get the government running the business of insuring people, the government's not trying to generate a profit. So that's a significant cost of savings. And when you have one insurer, um, the administrative side of that becomes all much more simpler. There are big savings there and also big savings in terms of the government can more effectively negotiate prices of certain equipment, certain procedures, certain prescriptions much more effectively because they're the only insurer in the marketplace. They have a lot more bargaining power to negotiate better with these companies. So you would also get savings in the form of drug costs and procedure costs as well. And then the second part that people usually say in opposition to something like, you know, Medicare for all is why should I pay for someone else's someone else's health care? If you have a private health insurance plan, you already are paying for someone else's health care. That's how all insurance programs work. Everyone pays into it, that money's pulled together, and then it's used to pay out claims. The same thing is true whenever the government's doing it. It's the same thing that these private companies are already well, doing. right now, you're going to pay a monthly premium whether you use it or not. Yeah, and the same thing would be true under universal health care. It's the same concept, but it's going to be cheaper and better. So why is everyone opposed to it? Do you think they're concerned that the quality of care will... Not I think good. that's a common talking point, but I don't think that many really – I don't think that many people are really concerned about it. I think most of the people that are concerned about it either don't know that much about it or they've been told that they should be scared of it by pundits that they trust or because we're so divided on partisan lines. They hear that it's something that Democrats are for. They're automatically opposed to it. The only politician I ever heard talk about it strongly was Bernie Sanders. Yeah. And, I mean, they, they crucified him for that. Yeah, well, they crucified him for a lot of things. Mm -hmm. um, he represented a pretty big threat to the Democratic Party establishment as it's currently organized. Um, because although I do think the Democrats, by and large, are better than Republicans across a wide variety of issues, I still have plenty of criticisms about the party. Um, they take way too much money from corporate America. But in our current political system... I think both parties kind of feel pressured to do that because they know their opposition is going to do it. Money wins elections, and whenever you have a system in which you can dump virtually unlimited money into elections, um, whichever side takes the most money from corporations is going to win. So both sides feel pressured to do that. Um, and until we can pass some sort of sweeping campaign finance reform, some sweeping political reform, that issue is not going away anytime soon. Now, there is the possibility of a big grassroots movement getting someone elected. That's def <coughs> that's, uh, that's definitely not outside the realm of possibility. Repeat that. <coughs> now, there is a big possibility of 
perhaps a grassroots movement getting someone elected. The Bernie Sanders campaign was a grassroots movement. I just don't think we're quite at that point yet politically where that's viable. I think we're getting closer and closer every day. Um, I think Generation Z is going to have some big opportunities in regards to that um, because we're capable of organizing effectively over social media and possibly achieving something like that. Um, so that'll definitely be something interesting to watch over the next 10, 15 years in politics. Well, I hope America can hold on that long because I feel that America is in a crucial time period right now. We're definitely in a crucial time period. Um, and we need to pivot. And I agree with that. I think people want change, but they're looking for it in the wrong area. Did Trump bring that much change? No, he promised he would, but he didn't. Has Biden... And each individual has done their... Has done good things during the administ during the administration, but it hasn't resulted today where the average American is any better off. Yeah. So, if we want I mean, change, in, in some ways there have been, change, but it's been. Why would we go back to Trump? If we want change, why would we go back to Biden? I'm just so ready for a breath of fresh air. Yeah. I think a lot in of Ameri- I think a lot of Americans are. Um, I also think there's also a sizable portion of Americans that are just scared because they see, I think they can kind of see the social fabric beginning to unravel and they just kind of want to slow that process down, which I think is the appeal of someone like Biden because he's not seen as this, he's not seen as this inspiring candidate that's going to lead America forward into the future. He's definitely seen as kind of a bulwark against someone like Trump, who people see as moving America actively in the wrong direction. So they kind of see Biden as kind of like an anchor that's going to keep us from getting dragged off into fascism, right? And then people on the other side, in the Republican Party, they see Trump as someone that's going to actively move America back towards our, you know, more traditional roots, away from wokeism, away from the scheming socialists in the Democratic Party. Um, And they definitely see Trump as that kind of anti-corruption guy, even though he's not that person, but he plays that role um, very effectively. And he uses that rhetoric very effectively. Um, I don't know until... Trump's influence in American politics really can't be overstated because I think the Democrats might feel more comfortable fielding a more progressive candidate if the Trump influence wasn't there because I think it has a lot of people in the Democratic Party so scared that they're willing to kind of settle for a more moderate kind of bland candidate if they know that it's going to keep Trump out of the White House because they're so scared of what another four years of his presidency might do to this country. And I think that's kind of a sad place to be, but it's the place that we're in because like you said, we do need to pivot. We need some radical change in this country. Um, But right now it seems like we're kind of going the wrong direction and all the people that would be in favor of moving in the proper direction are so scared that they're willing to stay kind of the same if it means we can stop that process of decline. From getting any worse. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. 
So this is what I was talking about earlier, and we don't really know exactly what's going to happen with concerns about the debt ceiling. Um, I'm looking here on Reuters, and it says that U.S. equity funds are facing huge outflows after May 10th on caution over the U.S. debt ceiling and concerns on disappointing earnings forecasts. So there's a lot of money starting to leave the market already because people are just concerned about what the potential repercussions could be. And that's another thing that's so tricky about capital markets. A lot of them operate not only on real information but also expectations of what might happen. And that's another factor that once you throw it into the mix makes it very hard to predict exactly what's going to happen because sentiment can turn around so quickly and it can be warranted or unwarranted and you it's hard to factor in what people are thinking or concerned about, you know? So it can really spiral out of control rather quickly. And that's why we should not be messing around with this problem any more than we already are. Did you see that uh, Kamala Harris was named to uh, the AI regulate AI? I know. I don't know why they're putting her in charge of that. I don't know if there's a single person in Congress that should have anything to say about that. After seeing the brilliant display of their technical knowledge whenever they interviewed TikTok CEO a while back, asking about does TikTok connect to Wi-Fi and questions like that. Okay, we're going to be coming up on a new election cycle soon. Yep. Last election cycle, some things got really interesting. As they often do. What role do you think social media is going to play in this next election cycle? I think it's going to play the same role it always does. Um, it's going to serve as a forum for people to share information, both true and false information. And it's it's hard to tell ahead of time what stories might break, what sort of trends or ideas might catch fire. Um, I've said this before, and I firmly believe it to be true. I think social media is the best and worst thing that's happened to American politics in a long time. Um because it's allowed people to connect and share their ideas, and that's been both great and terrible. Um, because while some people are able to share and connect with other people that have good ideas, the same thing is true of people with awful ideas. So you've had fringe political views, um, some of which have been good, and I'm glad they're starting to get more limelight, and some of which have been grotesque and evil, that are also starting to get more um, spread and awareness. Um and I mean, a great example of how this can quickly become a major problem was with the Hunter Biden laptop thing, the last election. Um, these social media companies are hopelessly unprepared to properly navigate some of these situations. And it's only going to get worse. Um, we've never dealt with informational flows like we see over social media now. And we're only beginning to see the potential impacts that could have in our political processes going forward. Um, and it's become concern. It, it's made concerns over what's true and what's false and what is reliable and what's unreliable more important than ever. And we now have even less of a good answer for that than we ever did before, because it's hard to know who you can trust on the internet. It's hard to know what sources are valid. And whenever you're coming up to an election, when time is of the essence, you're now making these incredibly difficult decisions under immense time constraints. And the likelihood that you're going to make the wrong call is just going to continue to increase exponentially. And I don't think there's a good way around that. 
Because there are some people that say, well, you know, they shouldn't censor anything. Well, I don't see how that could possibly be the right solution to this. Because imagine, let's imagine for a moment that the Hunter Biden laptop story, just and uh, another universe, let's imagine that that actually was Russian propaganda. But imagine that Twitter and Facebook had allowed that story to run uncontested. And imagine if that had come out after the election to be Russian propaganda, but imagine if it had swayed the election so much that Trump wins. And then it comes out afterwards that that was actually Russian propaganda and it wasn't true. That's a big problem. So Twitter and Facebook, that's going to be running through their minds when they're looking at that story because they think – they know that in 2016 there was a lot of Russian disinformation. That much has been proven. I mean they set up the Internet Research Agency, which was – their entire job was to spread propaganda on American social media firms to create more political division. So we know that that was happening, and they'd been warned of that ahead of time. And then this absurd story comes out about Hunter Biden's laptop and crack and cocaine and heroin and hookers and all this crazy stuff. And it sounds kind of crazy. Um, and I think that they were trying to do their best to ensure that disinformation wasn't allowed to run rampant. Perhaps they made some wrong calls here and there. And I think we're going to see a lot more wrong calls because there's not a good process for going about this. And I don't think – I haven't heard a lot of good solutions on how to deal with this issue because obviously the, well, don't censor anything, that doesn't work. And and on the other hand, well, allow these companies to censor freely as they wish, that's probably not a good solution either because what if they do make the wrong decision? So I think either way we go – it's going to be a tricky landscape to navigate. I think we're just going to have to tolerate some bad decisions. We're going to have to tolerate some mistakes and some missteps. But if it's bound to happen, I could also look at it like this because perhaps it's just me, <laughs> but I mm-hmm. take a lot of what politicians promise in their platform and during their campaign, I take it with a grain of salt. As you should. I don't necessarily say, well, they're, or think to myself, well, they're lying just to get my vote. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but I I don't see a lot of difference on someone campaigning on promises that will never be fulfilled. And so they win. I don't see any difference in that someone believing what is told to them is truth and it doesn't happen. I don't see any difference in that coming from a politician's mouth than any falsehood you might see on social media. I think, I don't know, throw your hands up and hope for the best. Yeah. I mean, I I think that's, I think that's a pretty fair point. Um, I mean, it all all comes down to what you believe, what you want to be for, and what you want to be against. And it all boils down to what you believe to be the truth or the best version of the truth. Yeah. I think the best approach going forward, I think social social media firms or companies need to do what they can to censor just the most outlandishly false things. I mean, things that they're not controversial, they're just false, like provably, factually false. But a lot of times at the time... Or or dangerous or violent. Because I'd say... I don't know, who decides? Well, like, 
hate speech, stuff like that, like out, outright threats, like calls for violence should be maybe so much not the truth thing because what you said is correct. Um, as information is coming out, it normally takes time to figure out what's true or false, especially in regards to like urgent crises. Like when COVID was coming out, there were all sorts of claims left and right and it was kind of hard to parse out what was true and what was false until the dust settled. And that's one thing not to go off on a tangent here, but that's one thing that caused a lot of people to lose trust in some of our health agencies is because they were having to go back on certain things that they said because they were trying to project, they were trying to avoid public panic. And because of that, I think they spoke with certainty where they should have spoke with more caution. And in doing so, they actually had to go back on their word as more data came out. They should have been more honest from the beginning. Well, that's what I'm saying. They they spoke with a sense of certainty because they were trying to avoid a public panic. I don't even know that that's true. I think that's absolutely true. Why would they not? Think about it from the perspective of a public health official. There's a global health crisis. We don't yet know. We don't have all the data and we don't really know how bad it is. But if we go to the public and say, well, we don't know how bad this is going to be. It could be killing everyone. You might be fine. Maybe your children will be okay. Maybe not. That's going to cause a lot of panic among the public. Um, so they kind of have an incentive to act, to speak with more certainty than necessary um, to avoid public confusion and panic because that's the one thing, like, if you're a leader – if there's anyone in the country that needed to seem like they knew what was going on, it was the health agencies, even though they really had no idea at the beginning because all the data wasn't in. Um, it probably would have been better for them to say, we don't know. But at the same time, in terms of messaging to the public, that could have some negative consequences. But I think they spoke with this false certainty that they didn't have, and then they had to go back on their word. But then there's also an incentive for them to kind of adhere to the words that they had already said because it made them look bad. It just became an entire mess. It was horribly mismanaged, without a doubt. In terms of how I think social media companies should regulate content on their platforms, um, it needs to be done with caution. It needs to be done carefully. I really think in terms of like who should be banned – that should be based on, one, is it a real person? If it's a bot, probably should just get rid of it. That's not good for anyone. Um, but on top of that, obviously, directly, like, hateful or violent speech, calls to violence, threats, those sort of things should be banned. Beyond that, I think need to be very cautious, um, especially as stories are breaking, because you're unlikely to have the full scope of information that would be necessary to make an informed decision on whether or not to censor something. Um, Really, it needs to be evaluated on a case-by-case basis, which isn't a great answer. That doesn't sound good when a politician says it. But I don't see any other way around it. News is always breaking. And you give your interpretation of what you have been told. You present that to the public in breaking news Mm -hmm. all the time. And... Sometimes you will never hear any more about it mm-hmm. because it doesn't become the story. Yeah. But I think the American people deserve to be presented with all information and let them decide because you will never be able to keep anyone from the opinion that they're going to have. 
Yeah, and sometimes... Sometimes the censorship, and we've talked about this before, sometimes it can have a sort of backfire effect. Oh, yes. Where you give credit to the very thing that you're censoring because the people that are going to be susceptible to believing in that thing now see the establishment trying to hide it from the public. Even if you have totally valid reasons for doing it, it's going to play into the hands of conspiracy theorists and whoever your opposition might be. Um, yeah, it, it's just – it's got to happen on a case-by-case basis. There's no way around it. Um, just with caution, with discretion, just being very careful. But even then, there are going to be a lot of mistakes made. I really think it ultimately boils down to the fact that social media is one of the most powerful social tools that humanity has ever invented. Um, this is probably more impactful than the creation of the printing press and we do not know how to manage this thing responsibly yet. It's just, it's way too new. I mean, it's only been around for less than, what, 20 years, maybe? And even shorter than that in terms of widespread usage. And we have no idea how to use it responsibly. We're like a kid waving around a gun. We don't know what we're doing yet. Especially the, the companies that run these platforms. It's just, it's unknown territory. Um... And especially with the last two to three presidential elections, it's increasingly grown more and more important in those elections. I think that really came to a head with the Hunter Biden thing in the last election. And then obviously the QAnon and Stop the Steal, and then that led to January 6th. And if that continues along that trend line, it's just going to keep getting crazier. And we're going to have to figure out along the way kind of how to navigate this process. And I think it's going to be hard to connect those dots looking forward. It's something we're going to have to kind of do looking backwards. Just going to have to keep learning from our mistakes and try to improve along the way. But there will be more mistakes. I think it's going to be important to admit those mistakes. Yeah. I agree. And it's going to be hard for those companies to do that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Critical Thinking Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please be sure to give our show a follow and leave us a review with any thoughts or suggestions you might have.